Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is my friend, the anthropologist and explorer, Dr. Ian Baker. We discuss one of the truly mind-bending topics out there these days, the hidden lands or Baal, unbelievably powerful geographical places where mindscape and landscape merge and where spiritual practice is accelerated. This Baal topic is an ineffable interworld between mind and nature, where facets of the landscape start to turn and twist the mind, opening revelations. We talk about the outer, inner, secret, and ultimately secret dimensions of these places, how the topic itself is kind of fractal in nature, and how that if we fundamentally open our minds and hearts, we can enter these hidden lands tucked within the present moments. There are so many topics we riff on. Tarama, or the treasure tradition. Symbolic guru, or how nature can be our teacher. Liminality, and how places can act as liminal dimensions. And how the language of metaphor is necessary to describe these otherwise indescribable places. And while this stuff may seem somewhat esoteric, it has tremendously exoteric or practical applications when we connect it to their current ecological crisis and our divorce from nature. Ian and I share some of our personal experiences around being in these places, the mystery of nature revealing itself in these ways. And then we fundamentally wrap it around into discovery of how the path yet once again is more perceptual than actual. This is really one of the most mind-bending interviews that I've conducted and I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to Ian's work into these hidden lands. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and welcome to this ongoing nightclub interview series where today, uh, I say this a lot, but I really mean it today, we have the wonderful opportunity to listen to one of the truly innovative, creative, scholar practitioners of, of Tibetan Buddhism and beyond, Ian Baker. And so as usual, I will read a short formal kind of bio, and then we're going to jump right in into a series of discussions that I promise you will be quite mind-bending. So Ian Baker, PhD, is an anthropologist and historian specializing in Himalayan and Tibetan Buddhism. He's the author of seven books, on Tibetan cultural history, environment, art, and medicine, including The Heart of the World, The Tibetan Art of Healing, The Dalai Lama's Secret Temple, and Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices. For over 20 years, he was based in Nepal, where he undertook prolonged meditation retreats in wilderness settings under the guidance of prominent Nimar teachers. He was further recognized by National Geographic Society as one of the seven explorers for the millennium for his field research in remote parts of Tibet. He was curator of the 2016 exhibition, Tibet's Secret Temple, Body, Mind, and Meditation in Tantric Buddhism at London's Welcome Collection, and is currently an associate of Sharda Lab, a contemplative research institute dedicated to the interdisciplinary investigation of Tantric Buddhist yoga and related health and longevity practices. So Ian, thank you, my good friend, for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to be with us. I'm super excited to dive into some really juicy topics today. Well, it's a great opportunity to be here, Andrew. I really thank you for, for inviting me to join you in your nightclub. 
Yeah, and for our, our audience, I, I had met Ian several times over the years, but most recently, in fact, was at this marvelous exhibit that he hosted um, and really almost on a daily basis provided tours at London's Welcome Collection. I was invited there to do a, a presentation on, on lucid dreaming and dream yoga, and so Ian and I had a chance to reconnect. But I wanted to um, immediately turn to one of the most compelling areas of uh, your work, my friend, and that, of course, is based on uh, your most magical book, The Heart of the World, uh, all about these uh, remarkable hidden lands, the Bayou. And um, I have to tell you, when I first read your book, uh, relatively recently after it was published, I had no idea what you were talking about. It was like I just could not wrap my mind around this stuff. And I found it to be somewhat like a, a kind of a conceptual Mobius strip um, where uh, as I was reading it, it was like, okay, is he talking about landscape? Is he talking about mindscape? Is he talking about non-duality? And it's, it's the book in itself, as is the topic, and our listeners will, I think, rapidly determine this, it's very kind of fractal or multidimensional in nature. It's on one level, it's a book about non-duality disguised as literally like Indiana Jones adventure story, right? <laughs> and then even within that context, we have the outer inner secret and ultimately secret dimensions of, of these hidden lands that you unpack in the most elegant detail. And so uh, as a way to just set the stage to um, get all of us on the same page, talk to us a little bit about what exactly are these hidden lands, these bales? So let's start with that. And then from there, we'll venture into the more nuanced dimensions of this topic. Sure. Well, bayul literally uh, means in Tibetan bay, meaning hidden, or can also mean secret. Uh, and yul is a land or realm, a valley. <clears throat> Again, it can be translated responsibly in a variety of ways, but the general consensus would be to translate it as hidden lands. So these hidden realms or these hidden lands or hidden dimensions, if you will, are very much uh, considered to be dimensions of the Himalayan landscape that uh, serve, again, a multiplicity of purposes. So let's just say, because you brought up this sort of rubric of outer inner secret and innermost secret, which is the way in which the hidden lands are... are um, conventionally described in these texts that began, that are attributed to Padmasambhava, you know, of course, the 8th century uh, Tantric Buddhist adept who, who brought Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism to Tibet. And the texts that began to appear, let's say, I think from, well, it's from the 16th century is the earliest of the so-called uh, Nayiks, as they were called. They were guides to these sacred places, to these hidden places. And these were often in the form of guidebooks specifically to so-called bayu or hidden lands. And they are often written as a as the tantras are generally as a kind of dialogue between, um, in this case, between Padmasambhava and Yeshit Sogyal, who was, of course, his Tibetan uh, partner, consort, who is said to have transcribed his oral teachings uh, in the form of these hidden texts that then became uh, that were revealed as hidden treasures, terma, over subsequent centuries, um, and provided uh, literally uh, directions to 
and descriptions of these these kind of hidden worlds, if you will, which were really like kind of hundred never neverlands in the in the at the edges of the Tibetan plateau. So, as I said, that so if we think about Beul generally, there's a whole range of literature uh, in Tibetan uh, canon that that describes these places and what one will encounter there, the rituals, et cetera, that one's meant to perform in order to, to enter them and also in order to kind of come through unscathed. Uh, so it's fascinating as a literary genre, but then what of course makes it most fascinating is the ways in which these were not just like, uh, you know, Buddhist pure, pure lands, which were in a sense accessed through dream and vision and meditative experience uh, or after death, but places that were kind of concealed within the landscape, almost representing a parallel dimension of the physical world, or certainly where the physical world and the spiritual worlds kind of come into they intersect. You know, we could look at that in the Western tradition as something like Avalon, for example, in the Celtic tradition. Um, again, as a place that's, you know, both that, that can appear under the right circumstances, but otherwise remains kind of veiled or hidden. So they serve historically in Tibet as places of refuge during times of, um, of cultural and political strife. And they, uh, so they're places where literally, uh, especially followers of the Nyingma tradition, followers of Padma Sambhava, could, uh, could journey to in order to preserve and uh, their traditions and flourish. But they also were considered to be places that were the preeminent places for tantric Buddhist pilgrimage in the sense that just journeying to the places itself became a sadhana and that the spiritual practices one would undertake in such places were considered to be considered to be especially efficacious. So some of the texts say, oh, what you can accomplish in a year of meditation elsewhere, here you accomplish in a week or even a day sometimes, it describes. And so it had, they had this kind of power, this numinosity, so that if one could actually get to the hidden land and practice there, you would have attained extraordinary results, was the idea. And, you know, we can talk about that as we continue because the whole the creation phase through creative imagination and visualization is all inherent within the journeys to the hidden lands, is it, as is the completion stage in which you're working with the, the kind of energy dimension of our existence. And so both of these were uh, inherent within the whole way in which the hidden lands are described and in the way they were approached and the way in which uh, they served as a support for that journey to enlightenment. A great, great overview, um, Ian. And a couple questions here. So where does that catalyzing power come from? Um, because obviously this is a very tempting comment to say, geez, you know, I, I can go, it, you know, it's like the, the power days. Yes. Um, where, you know, you can, you, the practices you do on the particular days magnify it a hundred thousand times. You know, is, is that in fact, Hyperbole is it? Is do we take these things uh, literally? Um, do we take them as as metaphors? And if we don't, if we don't take them as metaphors, if in fact this kind of catalyzing power is, is truly there, what brings about the uh, the acceleration? Well, I mean, according to tradition, let's say first, uh, many Tibetans would say, well, the power comes because it's a place that essentially embodies Padmasambhava and his own, it's, it's, it's his particular sacred place. It's the, the geographical imminent expression of both Sangdhapalri, you know, the paradise of Padmasambhava, but it's also held to be the kind of uh, 
almost a recreation, if you will, through uh, or a reestablishment is probably the better word of Udiana. So the sacred land of Padmasambhava, where Padmasambhava is said to have come from in the northwest frontiers of India, which was along the ancient silk roads and how now held to be in the valley, the Swat Valley, which is now currently in uh, northern Pakistan, in the Hindu Kush mountains. But even by the time Padmasambhava came to Tibet in the 8th century, Udiana was already being overrun by, by Muslim uh, armies, and uh, it sort of lost its uh, power as a, um, even though this is the place where so many of the Buddhist tantras are said to have originated, it no longer served as a as a pilgrimage place because of the the whole kind of cultural basis for it. The fourteen hundred monasteries that had been there were all you know were raised and abandoned. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about Udiana as originally the, the place of genesis of the Buddhist tantras. But in a sense, Pimaka, this hidden land of of Padmasambhava. Uh, referring to him as the lotus-born, but also this idea that by going to such a place, you're you're participating in that kind of mythopoetic narrative of his own life story. Um, so many would say that it's the blessing power of Padmasambhava itself that you tap into, and as a, and which accelerates practice. But the other way of understanding it is these are. It's not just the blessing power, but it's the inherent power of the elements in these particular places. So, you know, for example, Tukupema Wangyal once speaking about Pemaka when I asked, you know, because he had actually traveled through there when he was very young, when they were leaving Tibet, I think in the, in uh, actually, what was it, I think 1956 or 57, they traveled through Pemaka on their way to India. And he said, he described these places as being like just in the way that on the physical body, we have vital points, you know, if we use, for example, an acupuncture or acupressure in order to, to bring about a kind of corresponding effects throughout the body as a whole, that these ne or power places and the beyu, which are the larger uh, hidden places, have this same kind of um, power and energy. So it's sort of like they're the, the vital points or the... Uh, on the body of the earth and that by actually uh, using them as a support for meditation and yogic practices, uh, they have a kind of, uh, a kind of power that uh, in the sense that they activate a whole constellation of um, qualities uh, throughout the whole psychophysical organism, if you will. So that would be kind of the inner explanation of it. And then the secret one, of course, is that the elements in the hidden land are are so powerful that they come into kind of dynamic resonance with our own inner elements, the kind of equivalence of earth, earth, water, fire, air, and space, and that that kind of conjunction of the outer and inner elements uh, brings about a state of non-dual perception, which in a sense is the secret um, aspect of the hidden lands as representing a uh, interdimensional uh, reality in which non-dual perception becomes uh, a um a not not just something that's cultivated but something that's actually directly perceived by virtue of the power the inherent power of the place as opposed to a blessing power that was invested in it through great uh beings such as padmasambhava now that's that's really fascinating and really as you know in, in her yogic language they talk about literally the phrases penetrating the vital points and that it, it is actually one of the target aspects of the inner yoga practices where 
chakra centers, energetic centers within the body through visualization and breath work are, are penetrated, accessed energies, are, um, chakras are open, energy is released. And so in a very real way, and this is what I find so beautifully mind-bending about your work in, in, the, in the Hidden Lands altogether, is the, the complete non-duality, the inextricable manifestation of, of landscape and mindscape. And, and that therefore, in a very real way, the earth, um, I guess you could say on one level is, is you know, at the highest levels, right? The body of the Buddha, right? In a certain sense, you're, you're penetrating some of those vital points by going mm-hmm. to these locations and then receiving that. And so one, one interesting thing you may have heard, I think it was Lawrence Uncle who writes about this, and I found very compelling. And this speaks to me a little bit because I live along the continental divide mm-hmm. um, where, where magnificent scuba is running from the um, Rocky Mountain or the Shamala Mountain Center, the Great Scuba of Dharmataya, all the way down to Santa Fe. And I've heard it said in, in the inner yogic tradition that these scupas themselves act like, um, you mentioned, like acupuncture needles that, that are there to actually um, service balancing the energy of, of the cosmos of the planet itself. Mm-hmm. And so let me ask you this. What, you started to perhaps intimate this when you talked about the difference between these lands and, and so-called blessed locations, sacred geography from blessing. Why go to one of the Bayol and why not make it a little bit easier on yourself and, and just go to Bodh Gaya or one of the great pilgrimage spots? How, mm-hmm. how are these Bayols um, different from, because I've been to Bodh Gaya and, and I've been to some of these other Bayol like um, uh, the Solo Kumbu, for instance, where, where Everest is. But mm-hmm. being a Bodh Gaya, I, I can attest uh, some of the most remarkable dreams and experiences have occurred to me mm-hmm. in, in the, this kind of uh, nuclear power plant where there's just so much thermonuclear spiritual energy. But tell us a little bit, like, why go to uh, Pemica and go, undergo all these extraordinary hardships versus just hopping on a plane and, and going to Bodh Gaya? Well, I suppose in part it's a question of disposition, um, and in a certain sense that kind of goes back into my earlier history, what brought me to the path of meditation, what brought me to Nepal, what brought me into Tantric Buddhism, and into the pursuit, if you could say, of these hidden lands was, was because of a passion that I, that I had and continue to have for mountaineering. Uh, and often extreme mountaineering, at least in the past, you know, with ice climbing and mountain and rock climbing. And I found the most enlivening experiences and in some ways the most transformative um, experiences that I had were in those encounters on the, in the vertical world, where suddenly, you know, our ordinary perceptions are literally inverted and we're no longer on a horizontal plane, we're in a vertical plane. And where mindfulness is not just a a spiritual discipline it's a matter of life and death in order to survive <laughs> to survive so you know it's it's you know and ice climbing in particular had that you know you make one false move and you know your awareness has to be so multi-dimensional and concentric and yet the experiences that i had just um through that um and particularly and you could say you know we talk about post meditation but the post climbing experiences of just extraordinary lucid elation and including dreams, including the so the, this, the way that the practice itself of climbing basically imprinted the subconscious and the unconscious mind I, was fascinating to me. And my, as I said, my initial interest uh, to begin a practice of meditation came from 
wanting to bring increased control over my mind when I was in a in extreme, you know, lead climbing in very difficult and dangerous situations. And um, it was extraordinary. It changed my level ability, my climbing capacity to an extraordinary degree when I would meditate. And that began in the Zen tradition. Um, and um, as a result, I've always found challenging, difficult, wild places, also that just raw nature as a great catalyst to, to inner transformation and a support for it. But at the same time, like you, I've also been, you know, I've been to Bodh Gaya, where you just feel that despite all of the, you know, in one level, the horror around you of just the, everything from kind of urban sprawl to the crime to, you know, so much that surrounds the mandala of Bodh Gaya, which is, um, let's just sometimes say, uh, can be as dangerous <laughs> existentially as any of these wilderness areas can be there's an absolute power there. And as you said, it's like um, an acupuncture point uh, that you're right at the core of something. And in that sense, one goes in, in a non-dual sense, goes beyond preference for the wild, the tamed, you know, the, the urban, the, the, uh, the, the natural, all these kind of dichotomies dissolve within the experience of a powerful place. So Bodh Gaya is certainly a powerful place, despite its uh, density of human population. Unlike, let's say, Pimico, which is the opposite, where you know it's there, it's very, very uh, sparsely populated uh, by humans, at least. But there's plenty of of animals and, <laughs> and non-human entities around. I would say. So I would say, in my case, it was certainly a, a question of disposition, and also fascination, both with the way in which these naiks or the and the guides to the hidden lands what they described, you know, how they, you know, of course, so much of it is in the Tibetan Buddhist world written in a kind of mythopoetic metaphorical sense that invites one into a kind of sacred worldview, the, this idea of danang, you know, of sacred outlook in which you, uh, you know, you, the world is transformed or you transform it through the vision that you take to it. So for example, just to talk about Pemaka that way, how does it support this kind of inner tantric journey I mentioned how it, support, it supports both the, the so-called creation stage as well as the completion stage. So the pilgrim who enters into Pemaka, as it's described in the text, the, the central, it, the whole land is, is visualized as Vajabharahi, um, Dorjipamo in Tibetan. So this um, manifestation of Vajayogini as a support for one's own transformation and self-transcendence actually, but it's in Pemako, she's visualized as being in union with Hayangriva, uh, Tamding. Um, so this kind of energetic union between the male and female polarities as, as um, embodied within this union, the Abhyam image of uh, Vajyogini and, Hay uh, and, uh, and Hayangriva is, uh, and the chakras that are inherent within that iconography are also described and laid out along the uh, the central channel which is the the Tsangpo gorge and the Tsangpo river as it descends out of the tibetan plateau into india so the whole idea is that when you enter into pemaka from the north as you would from the tibetan plateau you're symbolically journeying through the body of this goddess in union with you know her consort and uh, and you know the mantras and the visualizations and but more than that the embodied experience of just moving through a realm that one is meant to 
according again to the text to, to perceive and experience as the mandala of the deity. And so this becomes you know, tremendously supportive uh, for that kind of transfiguration of, of perception and experience. And um, yeah, so essentially one can do the same. When you're in Bodh Gaya, you're at the very seat of you know, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment. So you can't really do any better than that. But I think there's this reach, as it was, uh, as it was called, the, you know, the wilderness or the mountain dharma, uh, which is the Tibetan word for the kind of more yogic path that takes nature as the path, as opposed to the monastic uh, orientation that was, of course, one of the great hallmarks of Tibetan civilization and in which so much of the Buddhist traditions that we lost in India were preserved. But I, I would sort of argue that it was at these places at the edges of the, the Tibetan Buddhist world where the yogic practices thrived, such as in the hidden lands that were really where there was a kind of vitality uh, in those places and in the experiences that, that um, those yogins and yoginis had who traveled to them that I found, at least for my, my, in my case, very, very compelling. When, when I think about these, these places, and sometimes I think of them um, as a, almost a type of poa. I mean, poa is this, um, this multivalent uh, term that has, again, these kind of fractal iterations. We can apply it in so many different ways. And I, when I go to these places, and I have not been to Pemico, but I've, again, I've been to other really charged secret lands, it's almost like an environmental poa where the atmosphere itself is so charged that it actually um, lifts you up. It really elevates you into, like you're talking about, this resonance with the land. And to me, this becomes really interesting um, in terms of the, the kind of converse application of this, what's happening today in the ecological crisis. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things that your book did to me, because on one level, it can seem just wildly esoteric. It's just this you know, really highfalutin Tibetan thing. But when I read it a second time, um, especially in light of the ecological crisis, I realized that so many of the principles that you portray in this book are actually being um, affected in the world today in, in a uh, converse way, in a negative way, this negative environmental color that we're, we're creating these, these um, impure lands that, that have the opposite effect, that we enter these environments and instead of lifting us up, they, they really take us down. So is that nomenclature, is that, does that land with you? Is that one way to, to really talk about um, the power of these places as a type of environmental transference of consciousness? I, I Very much so. I think, uh, you know, the way I, if I was to sort of try to look at a way of summarizing what does the, uh, you know, what do the Bayou represent in a, you know, in its largest sense that we could, relate to in our own nomenclature, as you refer to it, it's really an ecocentric view of the world and ourselves. So eco in the sense of ecological, as opposed to an egocentric, which of course is the samsaric idea that we're, you know, we, we relate to the environment from a sense of a, a solidified self-identity, which is therefore, um, uh, Unpenetrated, you could say, by the outside, by by the seemingly external uh, environment, and as a result of that, we we interact with it in a way as if it was other, and therefore not 
not something in which we are intimately extended. So the ecocentric view would be more like, you know, for example, you know, the Norwegian philosophers Arne Ness and, uh, you know, who coined the word deep philosophy, uh, sorry, deep ecology, in which, which was based upon this idea, it's not mankind and nature, but mankind as nature. And which was really essentially, although it wasn't specifically referencing tantric Buddhism, was this idea of a non-duality between the natural world and our own being, which of course we're deep, we're interpenetrated with it. Just the air we breathe, it's a cycling between the outside, the seeming outside and the seeming inside, which are in fact, as we would, would, would understand on a deeper level, a kind of non-dual um, exchange, an energetic exchange. So that shift from the egocentric to the ecocentric and because of our egocentric orientations as you say we manifest not not pure lands on earth we tend to to manifest impure lands and uh you know obviously this is what is at the very foundations of our ecological crisis you know we we spread our fields with glyphosate and you know suffer the consequences uh, in the long term, even if in the short term, it's um, more economically advantageous. So just these very small ways in which, which are not small ways, but have huge implications um, for our, you know, our world and our way of being. And that's where I really do see the richa or the so-called mountain dharma as something that is um, stands in 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 a very useful kind of contrast to, let's say to um, oppose it on the one level to monastic Buddhism, which, you know, we know historically has, as much as it has preserved, it's also been problematic <laughs> and has also in its own way contributed to, to certain kinds of ecological imbalances. And um, I'll just, I'll just mention a story. I was one, when I lived in Nepal, I went once to Bodha, Bodhanath, of course, the great stupa, which in a certain sense is the analog, if you will, of the Bodhgaya stupa uh, in Nepal. And I was there with a great Bajracharya master from uh, of the Newar community who hadn't been there in many years. And as we, he was uncustomarily very quiet as we were driving in to Bodha. And he said, and I asked him, you know, what, what was the matter? Because it seemed that he was sort of disturbed. And he said, you know, he said, the Buddha, you know, he left his palace, you know, his gilded roof palace to go into the forest to reach enlightenment. But, but these, these Tibetan, you know, these lamas, they've been cutting down the forest here to build gilded roof palaces to reach enlightenment. You know, how can that be true? So anyway, it was just kind of an interesting instance in which, and we've seen this in other areas, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that there's a lack of actual environmental consciousness um, sometimes uh, informing our, the, the, you could say the, um, what we would like to think otherwise as being just kind of um, seamless enlightened activity that would be fully aware of the interconnectedness and, uh, uh, of, of humans and their, their environment. But sometimes, uh, you know, trees get <laughs> and forests are, are cut down to build, um, you know, cement bunkers uh, in which for Dharma to be preserved. And I don't mean that to sound so negative. It's just that I've seen, unfortunately, many instances of that where I've sort of spoken to the abbot of the monastery. He says, well, trees can't meditate. We don't, and, and therefore it didn't matter that we cut down all this old growth forest to build a monastery. I said, well, trees don't need to meditate. It's people who do because we're out of balance, whereas trees aren't. 
but anyway, that just it's what I'm sort of trying to get at there is I just think it's really important as you know we in this age in which we're in that the kind of ecocentric view, um, which exists both in a secular context in the West, um, really deeply inform uh, the ways in which Buddhism uh, grows and develops and transforms in its current transnational, transcultural, international context. Because I think, you know, unless there's really a really a deep and sincere engagement with environmental issues that, um, you know, it's Buddhism won't be serving all that it can serve uh, as, as uh, our civilization progresses. You know, it's interesting, and I want to put an exclamation point on something that you also said in your book around this, and that I've, I've heard is instructions when one does Korah around a stupa, um, where uh, that when we're in an environment that is so um, charged and receptive and open, that the actual content of our minds also has increased power. It, it reminds me in, in some respects of what happens in the Bardos, where everything in fact, I think one way to look at hidden lands are these kind of liminal lands, almost like bardo lands. They're, they're neither here, they're neither there. They're of this earth, but they're, they're transcendent of this earth. And so perhaps akin to the bardos where whatever you do is magnified, again, these are archetypal numbers seven to nine times. I, I think the same thing applies. And to return to the story about the stupa instruction, mm -hmm. when I was first doing Korah, they said, well, you know, when you do Korah, you should... It's invited, it's suggested that perhaps you recite um, a mantra, and then, as you know, in Bodhaya, Bodha, Bodha Nap, I actually have a heart and stone's throw from Bodha. I used to do the Kora every mm -hmm. night. Everybody was walking around, all money, but the home is being glared from all the speakers. And it's because the instruction I was given is because everything is, it's almost like making birthday aspirations, that there's, there's more juice and that therefore the effect of your thoughts has increased power. And the reason I mentioned this, Ian, is because um, I think it's, you know, it's not just pollution in, in these overt senses that we're seeing in terms of ecological devastation, but as we know, the mind leads all things. And that it's also emotional and cognitive pollution that's taking place constantly. And I remember a very powerful statement that really resonated with something in your book, Trungpa Rinpoche and his teachings on the uh, Mahmudra, pointing out the Dharmakaya text, he said the most remarkable thing. He said that, you know, in environments where people are really aggressive and, and angry and violent, expressing thoughts of violence, he said that the earth will respond in kind and that things like earthquakes and environmental catastrophes are the correlates um, of, of this type of negativity that arises within the seeming privacy of one's own mind. And so what I, I love about your book is how it breaks down the barriers between um, inside and outside, between mind and reality, and, and eventually pointing to the, you know, to the non-dual nature of both. So can you talk a little bit more about that, about this, this kind of breaking down of boundaries that occurs in the veil and how they can therefore be seen as heightened manifestations or, or pointing out transmissions in, in fact of what was taking place on a, on a global level when we relate to our world, even the way we um, think and feel about others and the world itself. Mm -hmm. no, absolutely, and I think that's exactly as you say. Um, so as we know, let's say in, from in the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, you know, whenever we're 
were initiated, if it were, into Tibetan Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, that you know, one of the, the root vows is to, to uh, see all, all appearances manifest as, um, as the mandala of, of the particular deity into which one has, one has been introduced as one's inner uh, essence, as one, a reflection of one's Buddha nature, in all sounds or the mantras or the sort of sacred um, sound emanations and vibrations of that 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 um, divine form and uh so it's 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 sound and and the mind and so the thoughts that arise are also reflections of that enlightened um emptiness and compassion uh and wisdom that is also the nature of of the deity so in a sense the whole process as a sadhana or as a spiritual discipline of entering into the hidden lands is to see it as the mandala of this deity, in this case of, of Vajrayogini and Hayangriva, but it's also Padmasambhava. So that you, again, one can envision it differently. And it's also in Padmasambhava, as we know, as a human was considered a human emanation of Amitabha. And then there was also Amitabha's kind of pure land of Sukhavati, the land of bliss, so that Pemaka um, becomes, in a certain sense, an earthly uh, manifestation of this land of bliss. And so when one takes all of that as one's framework for what one perceives, then all hardships, all the things that would under ordinary circumstances bring about states of frustration, of anger, fear, all kinds of negativity that can arise in such a challenging, under challenging conditions, you, you, you embrace it and you recognize that. So it's taken very much as a meditation that way so that one, in a sense, can catch oneself uh, falling into any of those states that might uh, represent a kind of downgrading of our default mode, uh, not the default mode network that's referred to in neuroscience, but actually the default mode of non-duality, which is actually our real condition. So I think sometimes that gets reversed. You know, we actually, our, our default mode is actually non-dual. And it's actually only when we fall into confusion or disorientation that we perceive things differently. So this is really where uh, the, you know, the power in my mind of entering into these wild places uh, offers this kind of breaking down of boundaries. And especially because of the purity on a, on a, on a certain level of the, of the earth, the water, the air, everything, you know, in a certain sense is completely you know, in most of these hidden lands, you're completely away from the environmental contaminants that are at least uh, in, uh, introduced into such environments through human activity. Uh, but the pure lands on the earth, such as the as the Bayu represent, the Pemaka represent, you're just kind of you, you drink the water out of the streams. You, you know, the air is as pure as it gets. You know, so this whole way of just shifting our orientation. And then recognizing the sacredness of that connection, that this really is, in a certain sense, the paradisical condition. And the paradisical condition is not just simply because it's, you know, as Tukurigan once said before I went into Pemuk um, on one trip, he says, don't, don't think that these are, that the Bayul is a paradise in the kind of conventional sense that you know, there will be no hardship. It's just, it's a paradise for practice. Mm -hmm. It's a paradise that supports that non-dual awareness because you can recognize immediately when you fall you know, into hope, fear, uh, or any other kind of state that would function as a veil to that expanded uh, experience of our of our being, in which we are we interpenetrate 
with all reality in which all reality interpenetrates us in which any kind of idea of separation is just an illusion that we recognize and therefore dissolve in in the process of recognizing that's really fantastic we we have to somehow um, bring this into shambhala um and how <laughs> how does this relate to yeah. shambhala well i think it really does in the sense that you know as we know shambhala is a term as a kind of um another one of these liminal paradisical realms that was held to be of the earth but somehow simultaneously beyond it uh so unlike pemaka which of course can be located on an outer level geographically um some uh, shambhala has been somehow remains elusive in terms of where it actually was although of course there have been many different um you know great lamas of the past who have located it in different locations most prominently sort of northwest uh, the north north of Tibet and the northwest frontier up you know north of Kailash, um, but generally Shambhala, you know we have the first instance that I'm aware of it being used as a term was in the Mahabharata, so the ancient Indian epic, but then it became fundamental to the way in which the Kala Chakra Tantra was, if you if you will, which is such a compendium of different uh, knowledge sources, not just tantric Buddhism, but a lot of Shaivism, a lot of you know alchemy, a lot of medicine. It was really an incredibly encyclopedic compendium. Uh, and of course, the way that's presented is that this was a, a teaching that was first, was preserved in Shambhala. And that initiation into the Kala Chakra Tantra will ensure, even if we don't practice it in a in a kind of, a formal way uh, will ensure rebirth in in this uh, pure land, if you will, of Shambhala, which, as we know from, I think, roughly 400 years from now, when the world really gets into crisis, is supposed, you know, the, the great warrior kings of, of Shambhala will, will, will come out on their white horses and, and, you know, save us from ourselves, essentially. But in the meantime, uh, the, the whole idea is you know, through initiation into the Kala Chakra Tantra that we are uh, we establish a connection uh, with Shambhala as a kind of not really a terrestrial pure land in the same way that Pemaka is, but neither is it a completely celestial pure land the way um, Sukhavati, for example, is. It's something somewhere kind of in between, so even more liminal. Um, yeah. And uh, so I think in this way, Shambhala, you know, it, it's it's places like Pemaka developed because. In a way, Shambhala, we know, you know, for example, the Panchen Lama wrote guidebook, you know, in the end of the 18th century, you know, how to get to Shambhala. It was it was a place that, you know, he visited through dream, through vision. Uh, it could be reached after death, but it could never really be reached convincingly physically. And that's where the Deul, in a sense, kind of came in to play as being proximate paradises that were that's that were had qualities such as Shambhala, but where one could actually could actually reach uh, to physically, as opposed to just through dream and vision and meditation. You know, this leads, I think, one, into one really interesting thing I want to ping off of you. And um, somewhat connected to the more iconoclastic uh, recent expositor of, of Shambhala, of course, the Vidyata Trukhrimache, where he, you know, a, a massive part of the latter stages of his teaching was based on his interpretation of Shambhala. But what, what I want to say about this 
is taking this topic in, in uh, again in this kind of fractal manner, bolting it into the into the the present moment. Because on one level, there still seems to be a quality of, of journeying taking place here. And what you say in your book, you don't use these words, but it completely resonates with me that what cries out in this book over and over is the the spiritual path is more perceptual than actual. And so even though we can use actual journeys, pilgrimage, as ways to open our minds and hearts, fundamentally, it is in fact a, a, a journey without distance. The journey is, is in fact perceptual. And so with that in mind, when I was really reflecting on your on your book through your second reading, I thought about what Padmasambhava, again, um, how many teachings can be brought back to this Mahasiddha, uh, his teachings on, the, on the, the fourth moment, that that is in fact perhaps not perhaps, to me, that is the most immediate uh, iteration of the hidden land, that it's actually tucked within, you could say, using the portal of the present moment. You can, uh, you can use your meditation, your mindfulness, enter the, the conduit, the, the portal of the present moment, to lead you to, I mean, arguably the ultimate pure land, which is the fourth moment, that which transcends both past, present, and future. And so to me, when I, when I was going back through it, connecting it to some of the, my own experience with the Shambhala teachings altogether is, is that the most immediate ultimate pure land is in fact the hidden land tucked within the present moment that transcends time altogether, which is what Padmas and Robert talked about as the fourth moment. No, absolutely so. That, that, you know, the Turiya, as it would have been called in the kind of pre-Buddhist traditions, this idea of the fourth state, as you say, beyond prep, you know, the state beyond past, present, or future, so not even just the present moment, but something that is the timeless uh, dimension. So this, therefore, we'd be talking about not about a hidden land in any kind of geographical or topographical sense, but actually in a more in a dimensional sense. And this is this, this hidden dimension, which, as you say, is present. Uh, it's ever-present uh, within or as us, and yet because of our kind of habitual orientation towards uh, which in a more functional sense, we, we, um, we relate to, to the world around us as if it was other, because in a way that allows us to engage with it in, in, in sort of, uh, uh, in ways that, that are functional. Um, but when we are able through in meditative and contemplative states to recognize what underlies all of that, it's exactly, as you say, it's that, 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 um, that fourth dimension, which encompasses all the other three and which is the, you could say the real meaning of you know, that would be in in the the outer inner secret and innermost secret, which uh, dimension would be would be that yang sang, which literally means the innermost secret dimension of the hidden land. Is that it's you know you've transcended any sense of of external, external uh, self, other uh, topography and um, mind body yeah, becomes this 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 state, yeah. And so really, wouldn't it there, and I think you alluded to this in your book as well, in the latter chapters, where somewhat ironically, what allows us to discover this Yansang, this ultimate um, omnipresent hidden land is in fact the cessation of looking altogether. You could say in a certain sense, the cessation of pilgrimage altogether, resting in unconditioned awareness um, in the provisional present moment. And so I, I think that really is, is worth emphasizing again when we, when we talk about these different iterations of Hitman and when we get to the very hard essence of Minting, the Yangsan. And I, I stress this because 
listeners may be thinking, well, again, this is so wildly esoteric. Well, how does this relate to me? How can I, you know, how can I access this type of purity? Um, how can I really tap into the hidden land now? Well, in a certain way, it, it's, isn't this in fact what Naroda, so Nirvana, all the, the negations that are inherent in the fruitional aspects of our path, just cease, stop, stop looking altogether and allow yourself to dissolve into the always already um, present inland. No, oh, absolutely. And, and as you know, that's, that's very inherent with even, you know, the pre-tantric Mahayana presentations of, um, um, you know, of, of this idea of, hid, of hidden lands in general. You know, for example, in the, I think what was called the, the Mulamada uh, Makakara Karika Sutra, you know, where it stated that there is no difference at all between this world and nirvana. The limit of nirvana is the limit of this world. And we see similar iterations of that, as you know, in the in the Zen or Chan tradition, uh, where you know it's said that the lotus, you know, the lotus land, if you will, the the pure Buddha realm, is no different from the realm that we see uh, around us. It's just a matter of, as you were saying, of perception. And I think probably one of the most beautiful iterations of of that reality is actually in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas in the early Christian tradition, where it says, you know, the, the kingdom is spread out before us, but men do not see it. But when you make the outside like the inside, the inside like the outside, the male like the female, the female like the male, then it becomes, then it's just, it's there, it's present. So this kind of Gnostic gnomic verse that we have even in our Western, um, or at least say Middle Eastern originally, uh, traditions that speak to this non-dual experience which is you know in the gnostic tradition referred to as the kingdom of god but it's actually that which is within us but it's also uh not limited to that either it's this this kind of this non-dual state that arises when we when we suddenly transcend that outer inner um uh, that sort of false binary that that often um traps us in the in the samsaric cycle so kind of so much to say here it's just so fantastically rich but how how many are of these hidden lands actually are there, um, Ian? And I know there are variations in the text. And, mm-hmm. and along those lines, how does one, I, I want to return, or actually I want to ignite the narrative of, of contraction and openness and how this is central mm-hmm. to yep. these lands. And I want to start with the more overt. So we're going to pop back out from the Yangsan to maybe the outer level. Yep. And, and how does one, so to speak, open a veil, if that's even an appropriate terminology for it. How, how, how do they become revealed as places, in fact, of refuge? Um, what, mm-hmm. what actually transpires? Because I know, it is, is, for some of our listeners, Ian used this term, parma, which is a, a classic uh, kind of name of contribution where certain teachings um, were, were hidden, hidden treasures. And, and these terms, and, and Ian, you can speak with so much more elegance than I, they come in a variety of different forms. There's, there's literally terma texts that are hidden in rocks. There's what's called mind terma. There's what's called satir or, or earth terma. And so this ties in also to that, Ian, because on, on one level, when we talk about satir, earth terma, on, on one level, these Baal bring that topic into an entirely new dimension and, and quite a literal one where the land itself becomes the terma. And, and therefore, w- what I want to get at is um, exploring this topic and how 
what constitutes an opening of these of these lands, a discovery of this type of, of satire, we can even use that term. And the mm -hmm. reason I mention that again now is because the, you know, if ever we need places of refuge, right? Yeah. Yep. This is a pretty decent time to like call a little bit of help and see if we can um, gain access or, or somehow make these lands more available and not so hidden to the rest of us. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, so let's say more on that exoteric level of uh, how Beva functioned, uh, they often arose, the texts describing them often arose at periods of really great strife uh, in Tibet. Uh, and I'm sure probably as most of your listeners know that the whole history of Tibet was not exactly one of, of Shangri-La uh, and that there was you know tremendous amount of, of sectarian divisiveness and uh, uh, and particularly with persecution of the Nyingma a tradition, uh, the tradition associated with Padmasambhava by, I won't even name it, but other, uh, let's say, ascendant, theologically oriented, uh, theocratically oriented um, uh, sects in Tibet that tried to suppress um, the other, other schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And it was in that context in which the first text describing Pemaka emerged as a place of refuge uh, from that kind of uh, religious persecution that was happening within the Tibetan Buddhist world at that time. So they were literally places where at the edges of the Tibetan plateau, uh, followers of the Nyingma order could go and they could preserve their traditions without them being threatened by um, a more mm, theocratically inclined um, state uh, that was at the same time being sponsored financially and politically by, by Mongol overlords at that time, let's say, particularly in the 17th and 18th century. So there's some very interesting accounts of that time when particularly Pemaka was opened. And so what opening meant was essentially on some very visionary lamas uh, in dream, in meditation, in vision, uh, seeing the possibilities of these places at the edges of the Tibetan plateau in which they could physically find refuge from persecution uh, and at the same time where you could find fertile ground for uh, basically resettlement uh, and essentially establishing colonies and often in areas that were um, literally beyond Tibetan Buddhist civilization. So these were areas often that had very uh, already established animist tribal populations, for example, sparsely so, but certainly what, what Tibetans called Lopa, or tribal peoples. And as one Lama I spoke to, you know, once said, he said, well, it's no different from America. He said, America was also a Beu. <laughs> he said, when the first Europeans went there looking for kind of greener pastures, you know, they, they went and they had to subdue the local tribal populations, which of course they did, but they came with kind of religious texts, you know, like the Puritans and envisioning in America as a pure land in which uh, civilization could be recreated, probably not so dissimilar from, you know, Leif Erikson and the Vikings who, who you know, found their way, you know, were first Iceland and then Greenland and then on to Vinland um, in the northeast of, um, of, of North America. And again, had altercations with the local tribal populations, which is exactly what happened in Pemaco also, because they were, the tribal peoples were seen as non-Buddhists and therefore they, they, their perspective, the fact that they actually inhabited this area before they Buddhists came in was uh, not always seen as 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 uh, problematic. Uh, so there there were very interesting, and there continue to be interesting dynamics between 
the sort of Buddhist colonization of hidden lands that had a pre-existing tribal populations devoted to a different worldview and a different kind of spiritual and religious path. Uh, so that's sort of the outer level in which these places function. But, but just in that larger sense of what you're saying, you know, we've had this all through our you know, human history of looking for, you could say, the greener pastures where we can find refuge from ourselves and what, you know, the havoc that we've created for ourselves in our earlier locations. And so that was part of that whole Western expansion uh, out of Europe, ultimately the colonization of both South and North America, and often with, with very much with a spiritual orientation, as we know, the whole, the whole conquistadors going into and devastating the Amazon. And uh, it was very much done under the guise of a, a religious um, mission and um, obviously with, with devastating consequences. Uh, and yet, at least by those who, who had the vision, uh, you know, also for the search you know, for El Dorado, which, uh, which was this sort of city of gold, which was in a certain sense, represented a very materialist kind of earthly paradise as far as early you know, uh, Iberian conquistadors viewed things. So this is always the problem of, you know, the search for a paradisical world on the earth ends up sort of <laughs> sometimes destroying as much as it actually uh, reveals. And this is very true in Pemaku, uh, certainly both on the Tibetan side of Pemaku on the Indian side, just, you know, over the course of the many journeys that I've made to it, both on the Tibetan side and the Indian side, I've just seen a, you know, complete and increasing, not complete, but an increasing disregard uh, for the actual, uh, environmental integrity of it, often on the part of pilgrims coming in, you know, who are just kind of trashing the place, you know, ways that would never be ever allowed or permitted or even uh, probably done, let's say even in American national parks. But there isn't sometimes a truly environmental consciousness on the part of Buddhist pilgrims in the Tibetan Buddhist world. Uh, so I find that very interesting in the sense that it's just, it's just, it's kind of an it's important because I think, you know, without that being something that is, you know, we see that with Drukchen Rinpoche, for example, and the doc, you know, who is very, very much trying to promote environmental consciousness and cleaning up the, uh, the environmental pollution that has, you know, is, is so much part of Indian world, but also resulting from Buddhist pilgrims themselves. So um, I think, you know, he's been one of the most, you know, creative and innovative and outspoken uh, of Tibetan Buddhist lamas today in this regard, but I think this is this is the you know this is the you know, when we look to expand our horizons and and uh, find paradise on Earth, we have to make sure we don't despoil it in the process. What an irony, isn't it? Yeah, it's a tremendous irony, exactly. <laughs> a, a painful one. I want to return. You know, you write in your book that 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 when these lands and there was a little bit of a blackout on my end. When you were talking, and maybe you said this, and I didn't hear, so I apologize. But when these bales were, were so to speak, first established by Padmasambhava, so to speak, uh, you, you write that how they were sealed from the outer world by protective veils placed there by Guru Rinpoche. In other words, these kind of perceptual protective veils, which then would intimate that in order to open the bale, somehow these veils would need to be removed. So how how literal do we take these kind of statements? Um, can you just unpack a little bit more 
what sure. you mean when you when you speak about that? Yeah, I was going to say that's very much the way the text describe it. It's the oral tradition describes it. But again, I think you know to use the Jungian uh, analogy, we have to be careful not to concretize the archetype. Was yeah. I think the, the you know what what Carl Jung said that when we when we these incredibly potent resonant mythopoetic realities. If we take them literally, then we we can yep. get kind of uh, we can get lost <laughs> and miss the point really. And I think this is also the vision of of you know the Tibetan word danang, which means literally it's a kind of inner vision or a sacred vision. But literally da in Tibetan means symbolic. It means symbol. So it's a kind of it's about seeing things on the one hand very very penetratingly and realistically, but also seeing the you know, you could say the um, a noumenal as opposed to a phenomenal kind of dimension simultaneously, and not and being able to to navigate between those two, the phenomenal and the noumenal, if you will. So this idea of veil, protective veils, this is very much suits the 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 narrative of the hidden lands as places that are protected and that you only gain entry through, you could say, supplication to and submission to almost to to Padmasambhava. Um, as a, you know, as a, as it was sort of seen, certainly by many, as a, as a figure, as the second Buddha. Uh, but as we know, there's sort of very, very little known about Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava sort of, um, you know, almost developed, uh, and we certainly only don't have really textual references to him uh, until, for the most part, until much, much, hundreds of years after his, his, his apparent. Uh, first visit to Tibet in the 8th century, and then developing over subsequent centuries, multiple manifestations, the eight manifestations. So it became increasingly powerful as a metaphor uh, for our own, you know, non-dual enlightened nature. And that's certainly, as, as you're well aware, the inner teaching of Padmasambhava is not to see it, Padmasambhava is in any way separate from our own Buddha nature. It becomes, in that sense, the Yadam and the Guru. Um, but in that sense, you know, again, the skillful means of uh, of Tibetan Buddhism has always been to present, because reality is empty, because reality is therefore provisional, because it's relative, and therefore can be perceived and experienced at different levels. Uh, it also means that the teachings are presented differently, outwardly, inwardly, secretly, and ultimately secretly, according to the disposition and capacity of the the per, of the audience, and so, in other words, the hidden land uh, phenomena would be presented historically, certainly differently to illiterate yak herding uh, Tibetans uh, who are with tremendous faith, and yet without even the ability to read the text, uh, they would you know a particular narrative would serve best to to relocate them to Pemico, which was often the objective. Uh, and there are certainly these stories of great lamas like Jadron Rinpoche bringing huge groups from Eastern Tibet into Pemaka to try to resettle there, you know, to escape kind of the Galupa persecutions that were happening at the time. Uh, and at the same time, there was certainly in their own consciousness a, a different understanding uh, that was perhaps more subtle. Um, and even about the nature of, of Pabasambhava and the nature of, of how that quality of Padmasambhava is cultivated uh, within our own, through our own practice and uh, you know, the four mudras, for example. So 
and again, I think it's very complex and it's what makes uh, you know Tibetan Buddhism so fascinating is that it functions at all these, uh, you could say, coexisting or, or simultaneously existing levels uh, that are on one level without contradiction if one can looks at reality as essentially uh, as a as a simultaneously existing multiverse that we learn to to navigate and negotiate uh, through our practices where we're no longer you know we're not stuck in one dimension and therefore in one way of looking at things but we're able to situationally we're able we have situational awareness where we can sort of a privilege, if you will, one perspective over another, depending on the context and the activity to be performed. And I think that's what lends to the ineffable profundity. Like when you read this book, um, especially the first time I read it, it, it was like I knew there was something there. I, I could I could intuit these deeper dimensions, but they were still cryptic to me. And so I, I love this notion, um, Ian, of, of the of the self secret nature. You know, you know all all, all too well how the tantras themselves are written in, in this kind of twilight language or Dakini code or self-secrecy. And to me, what I, what I riff on here is it's like, um, and I think that's why perhaps some academic scientific types <clears throat> might struggle with something like this. And I, I found that aspect of me wrestling with this because it's, it's as if the left brain does not have access or admission rights to this domain. Um, <laughs> and it's like both, you know, double entendre, it's the right brain. <clears throat> that actually allows you into this territory. And so, you know, the to be ushered in, you have to have the right ticket, and the left brain is not that ticket. And <laughs> so when I was reading this, I found myself actually wrestling between these two hemispheric domains. On one level, there was this deep underlying ineffable intuition. I was like, man, there's something here. I don't quite know what it is, but there's something here. And then the left brain would come in and say, no, 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 this is, this is there's no ontological correlate here. And so in speak. You know, the, the issue is really there is there's no ontology here, which is basically dealing with epistemology, at least when we transition from these outer levels to the inner levels. And so that, that's an, yet another dimension of, of the text and your rendering that I found so so wonderfully baffling. Um, it, it, it really worked to checkmate my conceptual mind. <clears throat> and it was only, in fact, when the mind was seized or arrested in that way that I found myself resting, <clears throat> as I alluded to earlier. In the Turia, in the fourth moment, it was mm. land immediately available to me. And so I want to thank you for that. But let me ask you a personal question here. <clears throat> Did you have any reservations writing about something like this? Um, on one level, with the endorsement of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I think that's taken care of. But mm -hmm. when, when, when texts that are of this nature, this kind of tantric nature, this self secret nature, are brought into the public domain, um, as you know, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate dance. And I'm curious how you worked with that, or was it in fact part of your own journey to feel comfortable sharing these extraordinary teachings of the modern population? Well, certainly, I mean, the, the texts that describe the hidden lands, those are not considered, they're not restricted texts. They're not tantras in the sense that they, uh, uh, I mean, as you as you're describing the tantras, as 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 we know, you know, there's the Wang Lung Tree, there's the empowerment, and then there's the, well, for the reading, the scriptural transmission, and then there's the the actual empowerment, and then there's the commentaries that helps you know the the initiate to therefore make sense and navigate the practices that the tantras are are 
describing in, in, in twilight language, therefore kind of in a, often in a gnomic way that requires that oral transmission in order to have them make sense. But this is not the case with the text describing you know, Beul or hidden lands. Those are completely open texts. They, they weren't serving, even though they do serve in a certain sense secretly as sadhanas, as ways of, of relating to ourselves and reality um, in a tantric way, uh, there's nothing in any way restricted about the text. So I didn't have any issues there. And also in terms of any of my teachers, they were all very encouraging to, to write about the hidden lands. They felt that this was something that really needed more um, attention and that people should be more aware of. Um, so there was nothing in the textual material. And then it's only, you could say, you know, in my interpretations of it, which were uh, in a certain sense, how you know, were based upon my dialogues with my own teachers who were certainly interpreting and describing the texts as if they were tantric treatises that offer us different ways of relating to places that we would see on a, on a conventional level as being external landscape, as wilderness, and different levels of engagement, if you will, into those worlds. And they often describe them too, as you know, as Chatra Misha did, as they're, you know, they're terrestrial pure lands. And so we have this idea of the, the Buddha Chitra, you know, the, the pure lands, like, uh, or the Buddha realms, like I was looking at that on your, also some of your recent material and that you've been posting. And I quite, I find it very fascinating that, and I've heard this from other sources as well, that a, lama, a lot of lamas are, uh, are giving more emphasis to, to, you could say, Pure Land Buddhism. In other words, this, which we, you know, have traditionally, let's say, uh, often understood to be uh, a Mahayana approach, whereby, you know, if one isn't going to be able to engage in the kinds of practices that would bring enlightenment in this lifetime, you at least make gain the merit and and the and um, aspirational prayers to be reborn at the time of death into to a pure land uh, such as Sukhavati, um, the land of bliss connected with Amitabha, uh, whereby only in you know in, you would only have one incarnation there before enlightenment would would arise, and so kind of a halfway house to enlightenment, if you will. <laughs> And it's, it's, they're, they're fascinating um, on many, many levels this way. And because I remember having that very specific discussion. Uh, and this is something that's quite interesting. And I think very few, few people are aware of, but was certainly brought to my attention. Um, when Lama said, do you know, when I talked about Sukhavati, land of bliss, it sounds like the perfect place. And he says, yeah, well, if you're a monk, it's perfect. I said, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, if you look at actually the, you know, the Sukhavati Vyuhatam Sutra, it shows that no women are, there's no women in Sukhavati. And if you're, even though there are women who will aspire to be reborn there, they have to actually completely denigrate the female incarnation in order to, they have to be reborn as males in order to enter Sukhavati. And it's a completely kind of a male, it's like a, it's like a celestial fraternity. There's only <laughs> It really is. It's it's actually kind of terrible, and it's and and then I said, oh, I said, well, that's the bad. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's Amitabha's pure land. But then there's also Aksobia's pure land of Adirati, which is uh, where you know w women are provisionally allowed, and yet um, it's it's no, it's not as well known, obviously, as Sukhavati. But in um, you know, there are women, he said, in Adirati, but they're only 
they take the form of kind of celestial apsaras, you know, kind of, um, you know, dakinis and fierce dakinis. They're not actually like what we would think of as kind of normal human women. And so there's this incredible gender bias uh, in the Buddhist Pure Land ideology that makes them, I would just say, ideologically problematic. <laughs> and that, uh, that therefore, uh, as, and I won't even mention the Lama in this case, he said, better, you know, better stick with, you know, Udiana, for example, which was, let's say, the original earthly pure land in the sense that this is where the tantras arose, was often also called the land of bikinis, the land of women. And as we know, that all of some of the great Mahasiddhas, Virupa and Tilopa, uh, they all, and even including Padmasambhava, they all had female teachers whose names are kind of largely stricken from the record. And, uh, you know, it's this, this sort of monastic denigration of the female uh, that has arisen as Tantra, Buddhist Tantra, was monasticized in its, you know, as it became a theocratic religion in, in, in Tibet, as opposed to the yogic uh, outgrowth from monastic Buddhism that it, it represents when we look at the earliest tantras, Guya Samaja, Hirajra, Chakra, Sambara, there's really nothing, there's nothing in there for monks. And as, as Dzogchen Pundla Prambhashe has said, Vajrayana was not made for monks or nuns. It's just, yes, they can practice it, but only through a certain, as he referred to it, kind of an intellectual acrobatics where you have to take some of the practices and teachings and kind of reorient them uh, to make them symbolic since they can't actually be practiced in the literal way in which the original teachings indicate that they should be. So this is very interesting to me. And I think the problem here is that, at least as it was sort of presented to me, that the Pure Land ideology is kind of almost a spiritual bypassing. You know, you, it's almost like, you know, you do anything you want in this life now, because as long as you have made sufficient donations and, and merit making and uh, aspirations to be born in this kind of celestial heaven, uh, then, and then from there you'll get enlightened. So it's kind of, you know, I think there there's some problems there, especially the um, the, um, the the exclusion to women, and that a woman to be born in Sukhavati has to completely renounce any her her current female incarnation, and therefore be reborn as a man uh, from a lotus in Sukhavati. That's basically the way it, the way it works if we go back to the original source texts. So I find that way Udinana, Shambhala is much more interesting because Shambhala, right. they're queens and dakinis in, in uh, Shambhala and Udiana, but not in, not in Sukhavati. Something quite wrong with that picture. So, so I want to share a, a little story with you, Ian, and then return. Uh, I want to ask um, for you to guide us into a more sensitive relationship to, to the phenomenal world, even right here and now. Um, and I wanted to start with when I was at, uh, when I did my three-year retreat uh, at Gampo Abbey, this you know, one of the, probably the most incredible part of that retreat was just the, the it was like in a, a nature preserve. It just had so much environmental power. And I remember, and I'm sure you've had these experiences, and I, I'm more free to talk about these because I've heard others share similar stories at the Abbey, where I, I would, for instance, be looking out pensively um, from the meditation room. And I would, again, you, you, you think, I'm going mad when I make these kind of proclamations, but I'm sure you've had them yourself, where I would be looking across the horizon and I would, I would literally see clouds take the shape of a hook knife or mm -hmm. a cloud take the shape of Tibetan letters or a cloud or, or even Chinese um, characters. And 
I, I found it to be the most mind-blowing, bending mm. transmission of, of the other inextricable connection between inner and outer. And it became so powerful for me in that every morning when I woke up, I, I would, um, after my morning session, I would always take a little walk around the compound and, and across the, you know, with 200 foot cliffs above the raging bubbles of the ponds. And I made it a point every morning to walk out and say, good morning, Buddha Lachana. Nice to see you, Buddha Mamaki. Oh, good, uh, you know, Pandava um, In other words, the, the elements of this earth are the female Buddhas. Mm-hmm. And I, I developed this deep, um, dare I say, kind of um, spiritual intercourse mm-hmm. that I, I didn't know about hidden lands at that point. And so when I came out later, years later, and read your book, I said, oh my gosh, this is so resonant with what I was experiencing, this absolutely magical relationship to, to the land where literally the environment itself starts to communicate as a type of symbolic guru. And so to me, what, this, what, what I noticed in my own experience, returning to this, this narrative that you um, suggest frequently throughout your book is that one of the ways, one of the takeaways I take from your work is that you really open the bayoral one merely just needs to open one's heart and mind. So earlier when I talked about, you know, how do we open the bay? Oh, well, there's this kind of more exoteric approaches. But the fundamental admission to be ushered into the bayol, to open the bayol is to open one's heart and mind. And, and so with that in mind, can you maybe give us some suggestions for how to use, this is one of the most interesting lines in your book, how to use the phenomenal world, fulcrums of, perception um, to reveal this inner sacredness. So like the next time I go for a walk in nature, the next time I'm in, in the, the natural world, what might you suggest to us to um, kind of work with, practice this type of uh, exquisite openness and sensitivity to the, to the phenomenal world? Mm. No, it's a, it's a beautiful question. And, you know, you, in a certain sense, <laughs> you've answered it, which is, um, but, but, I, but I will obviously um, yeah, try to, to, to say something more. But I think, you know, it's exactly as you said, when we find it's this opening of the heart, opening of the mind, which, you know, happens, let's say, most powerfully in our human experience when we fall in love. In this case, you know, where there's just complete porosity um, between the self and the other nature and our own being. And I think this is the power of the Bayou. Now, the places where we just, at least for me, the nature is so extraordinary, where we just were in a state of delight. Uh, and um, and it's, it's love. And therefore, we become receptive to and therefore are interpenetrated by the external phenomena um, because, you know, our, our, we, our receptivity has become so so in a way unconditional receptivity and we are penetrated by it and this is this is of course as we also know from the gnostic tradition the whole idea and also in the tantric tradition where and even as lama yeshi said it's when tantra is not the male that penetrates the female it's the female that penetrates the male which basically referring to this idea that this just it's just an absolute and unconditional receptivity uh to to the to natural phenomena in this case and that might be everything you know from the rain that pours down from the sky even when it's uninvited it's just taking the light in whatever arises it's actually being able to transcend that mind uh that you know in a way 
holds preference because the whole idea is that anything that arises in the hidden land, because you're in a mandala, anything that arises is the offering, it's the teaching, it's the blessing. And so the rain that pours, the thunder that might come, the waterfall you have to cross, the, you know, the rocks that, you know, you're, or the scree slope that you're descending through in which the, there's no ground. And there's, you know, it's sort of groundless ground. Everything is dissolving in front of you. And it's just somehow rather a shift of mind to take delight in whatever happens. And delight and extremity in that sense, I would have to say, because of course the difference with working with these kind of terrain is it's about, not, it's the, the bayou is the opposite of a comfort zone. It's, the, it's a space that actually challenges all of our preconceptions of what, of comfort and ease. In that sense, you know, it's not the land of milk and honey, it's the land of, um, you know, of fire water and, um, and uh, you know, it's an elixir. Uh, it's the tonic of the wilderness, you know, as, as Thoreau would have referred to it in that sense. It, wildness is the preservation of the world. And so it's about this rewilding of our own selves, a rewiring and a rewilding. And I would say that that's really just about entering with that danang, which is the sacred vision, the idea of that divine, uh, just to see all appearances as divine. And so, it, and it can come so powerfully just by the re-engagement with our sensory field. You know, it can be like, you know, we may be there without a cup and, you know, we have to put our face down into a, to the stream to drink the water, you know, as we're grasping onto the rocks to, to, to keep from falling down a precipitous slope and just the feel of the trees as we're holding onto them or the feel of the rocks, the earth, this in absolute engagement um, that's unconditional because in some cases our life depends on it, but just taking absolute delight. And in that sense, this is where I really see, again, the metaphors are so supportive. So if we see that in Pemaka, the whole, it's like, you know, Vajyogini, if the, all the landscape is aspects and chakras and nadis of her body, you know, it's, it's just this incredible gift of being admitted into this divine realm that uh, where the metaphors support that sense of literally falling in love with, with the world and with experience. And in that sense, it's that, you know, the great tantric reversal of early Buddhist views of, of what at least renunciation meant in a conventional sense in early Buddhism about, you know, renouncing an unredeemable world. But in, you know, in the tantric view, ultimately, it's, it's, it's you know, it's not dukkha that pervades the world, it's sukha. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not suffering and pain, it's, it's, it's bliss. And so this, I think, is, you know, as we know, the Four Noble Truths, they were Four Noble Truths for those who'd renounced the world, the noble ones, the Aryas who'd renounced the world. And so they support that particular kind of decision and orientation, but Tantra uh, in, insists on something else. And it was the path, as we know, of the Vira, you know, of a kind of a heroic disposition, as opposed to one of really sattvic disposition, who, wouldn't need it. And so this, I think, really is the key to um, using any nature. And it could be a park in London. It can be, you know, the, the, the continental divide, as you say, which is so powerfully present, you know, in Colorado right there. You know, and it's just about embracing the elements that are in that way extending from the outer world into us and from the inner part of our being into the outer world and recognizing that they're all interpenetrating. And we are in that non-dual state whether we like it or not. And so the point is just to open to it. And in that sense, then the veils drop and then we're in that lotus land uh, without, seeking, without seeking it. 
that's beautifully said because we, we always forget, it's like you were alluding to earlier, this is the natural state. You know, what we, we it's very interesting to me, and we have this, this notion that we have temporary experiences of these nyam when we break through. Well, well, I would argue that that's actually looking at it completely backwards. Samsara is the nyam. This is the temporary experience. It's just been going on for so long, we now think it's the baseline. And so when we open it up, when the contraction, the aperture of our awareness relaxes, we, we literally fall awake. We fall into love. We fall in love with reality. And I love, I love even your languaging has these layers of meaning. So when you talk about absolute engagement, to me, I, I immediately, immediately flipped on the absolute engagement leading on the way to the marriage to reality. That when literally when one engages in reality, it, 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 in a colloquial using that phrase, we are learning how to um, get engaged with the phenomenal world altogether. And I also really want to put an exclamation point on what you're talking about is metaphor is language in this domain because the binary left brain um, apparatus again has no traction here in, in usual yes no black white. Um, levels of, of dualistic thinking simply don't apply. And so we have to have a different language system here. And so the language then becomes, in fact, the language of metaphor, symbol, where, where even Milarepa, you know, this beautiful line in the Sada Mahamudra, phenomena are all the book one needs, that the world becomes then this, this unbelievable symbolic guru that is always teaching. We simply have to open the aperture of our hearts and minds and to realize that, as Milarepa said, um, that's the ultimate teacher. And, and I think this, this story has particular impact to me as, as a, as a um, scholar uh, when Marpa was crossing the river, right? And, and, and all his books were thrown overboard. Um, that teaching that eventually, um, in fact, it's only the, the right brain, so to speak. And I don't want to get too literal with that, but the, the opening transcending language, if we know it, looking at the universe in this metaphorical language, because that is in fact a language that the mystical twilight language within which this level of reality communicates. Mm. So, I, oh, please go ahead. No, I just kidding. No, that beautifully said. And I think, you know, it's, it is, as, as you're saying very much about, you know, the language of metaphor, metaphor, you know, as, you know, etymologically as it means, it means to, you know, to throw over. So it's in a sense, we, we, <laughs> We leap over uh, it, it as we in old poetic verse. Uh, it's a way of moving us beyond, let's say, continuing the the, the idea of, the, of a left brain exclusively rational uh, conception and understanding and experience of reality into that more poetic, seamless right brain. And but I think ultimately, rather you know, oh, the right game may be the the first gate. The ultimate ideal, of course, is to is 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 overcoming that false that binary and actually recognizing the union, if you will, of the the left and the of both hemispheres in this union of heaven and earth, which of course is the you know the Gnostic metaphor um, of, of heaven and earth. It's the same kind of binary that we see in you know what Nietzsche referred to as the Dionysian and the Apollonian. These poles that need to be, in a certain sense, neither neither one is exclusively gives exclusive access to that ultimate um flourishing of 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 being that that in a sense enlightenment represents but uh but actually this kind of um seamless uh integration of what we often are often 
represent their polarities, but their dynamic polarities in the sense that they can be integrated. And that integral vision, of course, is that that state that arises when uh, one is no longer confined to, to one or the other, but in which both uh, both and uh, reach a, a kind of full fluorescence. Yeah, this, this kind of complementarity way of looking at reality, you know, that even, even the physicists were forced to deal with this, you know, I mean, Niels Bohr, when they were trying to resolve the wave particle um, paradox, well, it's, it's only a paradox to, to the conceptual mind, right? It's, it's yes. not a paradox yeah. in reality, we just yeah. don't have the right languaging for it. Mm -hmm. So Jung talked about it, you know, the conjunctio tremens and, and uh, complementarity with Carl Jung and that. And mm -hmm. I, I love this because it, it gives us something that we can now work with. Natron Rinpoche of Ian had this languaging when he talked about this as Drala principle. Uh, yes. Mm. Drala, Drala meaning, of course, beyond the enemy. Well, the enemy here is, in fact, this shrink, shrink wrapping, contracting, clenching, conceptual relationship to the world. And so we would engage. In fact, it's one, one of the main things I do when I do in-person retreats. We, you know, Drala walks where... You engage in, in exactly this type of engagement and dare we say intercourse with the phenomenal world and, and opening our hearts to the extent that we realize these elements, you know, this, this magnificent level of ineffable communication um, from, from reality resonating um, externally and internally and, and the language, you know, the mystery, the language of, of metaphor. I, I, don't, this, I think this cannot be overstated that that it really then provides us with, in fact, a language system that, that we can uh, become more sensitive to, the symbolism of, of the phenomenal world, mm. really relate to everything that arises. And, and again, this ties in very beautifully to what? To dreams, that you see the dreamlike nature of reality where things communicate themselves in this um, symbolic manner. And so, um, oh my gosh, as we start to wrap this up, um, how has this, and on one level I can hear it in what you're communicating, but how have your, what, some 10 trips to Pemica and, and other hidden lands, um, before and after, how, how has this journey fundamentally transformed you? I mean, obviously you're, you're suggesting this with this magnificent offering over the last hour and a half, but on a, on a, if I might you know, invoke from you a more intimate personal portrayal of um, you know, geez, I want to be like Ian. I I, I want to go, <laughs> you know, and explore these lands. Right. Uh, talk to us how further. And it's a wonderful way to wrap things up. How these lands have touched you, opened you, and transformed you to to speak with such with such power and authority and conviction on this, this magical topic. Mm. No, well, thank you for the invitation to to speak on that because, of course, it's it's. When we look at our personal journey, um, you know, there's so many factors that come into play. But I suppose, um, you know, I'll just start with, you know, one of the key Tibetan phrases that I found so resonant and so powerful as a rubric, if you will, for essentially experiencing, let's say we're approaching the hidden lands, is the kasher lamkir, you know, kasher, so meaning whatever arises, whatever happens, uh, that's not just on our journey to the hidden lands, but whatever happens in our life, you know, um, carry it to the path. So, uh, yeah, so kasher lamkir, it's a little bit like what Nietzsche meant when he said, you know, amor fate, you know, to love your fate. <laughs> so really actually the same 
same idea. In other words, that there's really, you know, it's just life is too amazing in order to, in that sense, have kind of uh, diminishing preferences for thinking that one thing has to be this way or that way for our, our to be happy or to thrive. And that there's always some kind of, there's a mystery if things don't work out the way you thought they would, though, maybe there's some, you know, something else is, or it allows for something new to happen. So it's this real, you know, there's so much, and especially in the world we're in today, there's so much kind of concern for, oh, the uncertainty, I can't make plans, I can't, everything's uncertain, I don't know if the world's going to even be around in a year or two, you know, what's going to happen if I get the vaccine, is it, you know, I'm going to have a delayed reaction, and eventually, you know, my brain's going to, you know, there are just so many uncertainties that are, that are, you know, out there on extreme levels, as I just kind of mentioned. Um, but on another level, this is really what life is about. And we are all, you know, now that the world is in a bardo, we're in a liminal space where we really don't know what the outcome of this, this is going to be. The whole world is put into retreat and we're also very much in a civilizational bardo. But this is really about what the hidden lands are about. It's about embracing the unknown, not about you know, embracing uncertainty, certainly, but it's about opening into the unknown. It's about the... And that's certainly the experience, you know, for me of wilderness, of wild places, like what's over that ridge, what's around that, you know, a place where there's just, you know, I, one of the things I loved most when I lived in Nepal was to go off to the top of this mountain, Shiva Puri, and then I just make arbitrary, I'd go down, I'd bushwhacking has always been was one of my favorite activities. In other words, to go where there's no path. And you find things that way in nature. And just sometimes it just meant like <laughs> reaching a dead end and just finding yourself in the middle of a thick, you know, the whole point was to get lost. And mm -hmm. it's when you get lost like that, when you lose your familiar coordinates that everything kind of can open spontaneously. So bushwhacking in a sense also becomes a metaphor for embracing the unknown, embracing, you could say, potential for adversity, let's say. But it's really about just opening to experience. And that's opening, that's adventure in the literal sense of what the word adventura means, means to, to whatever arises, you know, what comes, opening to what comes. And that's, I think, really, you know, the, what we're facing on a civilizational uh, basis today. We, we have no idea, you know, when, you know, what the world's going to be like when COVID ends. But you know, and that can lead, as it has, to many people into kind of depression and, 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 and anxiety. But there's also this incredible sense of possibility that, you know, we're almost in a state of infinite potential right now. We could, it could go any way. And just the, the extraordinariness of that and the, the responsibility that we have in terms of our individual actions to try to, whatever way we can, in an extremely limited way, to sort of support that movement towards you know, an ecocentric world, as opposed to an egocentric world, one that supports this recognition that we are part of everything, and everything is part of us, and that we're all interconnected. And I think that really, in a way, has been my personal journey. And it's just been furthered by, you know, there was one hidden land after another, and there's no end to them. And it was a question you asked before, which I think I didn't really answer uh, properly, which is different texts describe, well, there's 16 major ones, or there's 108 and other texts. In other words, they're, they're not limited. 
And even as Namkai Norbu Rinpoche said, for example, when I asked him about it, he said, well, no, don't, don't think that they're just limited to the, you know, the Himalayan world. He said, they're, they're definitely Beul in, in, in South America, for example. And even some of the places that he chose for some of his places, islands off the northern coast of Venezuela, for example, he saw those as Beul. So, and again, the Beul are places where there's something kind of, some force, some paradoxical force, you could say, within nature itself that allows us that become places where practice produces, you know, the gongter, the mind treasures, the revelations, the dreams, the this extraordinary sense where we are interpenetrated by, um, yeah, by by everything. <laughs> and that's, and where, where dreams become more lucid and become more yeah. powerful. And that, yeah, they're almost like, you know, the equivalent of a hypnagogic state on a geographical level sometimes yeah, as people said yeah and a new term for that in fact is liminal dreaming is what sorry is a new term for that these days is liminal dreaming so liminal this, dreaming beautiful mm. you know this froth of perception this plasma of mind and reality neither here nor there and are mm. you okay with that and, and what came to mind um ian is so beautiful what you shared is is of course minja rinpoche's fantastically beautiful book in love with the world, where um, he, he states the most amazing statement. He says, you know, I wanted to put myself in situations where I was unfamiliar to myself. Mm -hmm. Statement. And therefore, yeah. the result of this journey was literally almost dying in the streets of India, mm -hmm. waking up from that near-death experience and realizing that, that the world is, in fact, made of the fabric of love. That when you look at, at the tree, it's the tree is love. Mm -hmm. And we fall into uh, a reality we're falling into love that is the basis and so to me this is a fantastically beautiful place to, to start to to wrap up where really the the punchline is no punchline it is resting in what zen talks about is don't know mine divine mm -hmm. ignorance dr Frijan put it you know just being okay with not knowing being okay with the open question where the journey really is the goal and, and what i'm left with here that is so really lovely for me the gift of my time with you is that I'm left with this quality of just surrender into the mystery and magic of it all, just not no mind and and riding that, being okay with that, um, uh, dancing in that space. And so I want to thank you for the elegance of your words and and the courage of your journey, and you know what an impact it's had on me and many others. So you're you're an intrepid explorer of the inner and outer domains. That's leaving a lot of collateral benefit in its wake. Um, I'm one of the beneficiaries, so I'm, I'm grateful for your time. Um, we have to do this again. As, as much as we've talked about, there's so many other dimensions we can explore. Um, but as we start to close this up for today, Ian, because I'm, I'm very respectful of your time, tell us a little bit about how people can contact you, um, what you're doing, how they can support you. We always mm -hmm. have in, in, the, in our community this this kind of spirit of cross-pollination and mutual support with our guests. And so mm -hmm. what can you tell us about what you're doing and how we can support what you're up to these days? Sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah. First of all, just thank you very much for, you know, your wonderful way of, um, in a way, essentializing what the, the, you know, the great gift it is when we, uh, you know, if we can see practice, if we see as a love affair with the magic and mystery of life, uh, it, there's this sense of just un, unfolding and expansion. 
And I think that really, and then, as you said, there's so much more we could speak about in this context, even, you know, it was just it, one of the things that came up in my mind, you know, the, the traditional preliminary practices for Dzogchen, for example, the Corderushen, which is very much about engaging with the natural world and natural phenomena. And then also the ancient Hellenic traditions in our own, you know, Western culture of incubation, as it was called, this kind of alchemical dreaming um, as, a, as a spiritual practice. Um, but so what I'm in my own work right now, I'm uh, uh, you mentioned Shardza uh, Lab, for example, that's a project that I'm working with currently, which is looking at ways in which uh, the interface between you know, there's so much that's been done in the interface between, let's say, scientific research, mindfulness, you know, yogic practices. It's fascinating, for example, that, you know, when we look at the origins of all of that research. It started in 1982 with Herbert Benson, not looking at you know, what was happening during either focused attention or open presence meditation. It happened with two more practitioners of inner fire. So it's very interesting that that kind of yogic, and it's only now through, through research by people like Maria Kozhevnikov or uh, others where um, what's looking at the, you know, the, the neural correlates of, of more dynamic yogic practices are being explored and what that, uh, what that means uh, in terms of, of not just human well-being, but human tra you know, but transformation. So I've been invited, uh, at least for the current months, to do some research on looking at the ways in which some of these traditional practices, which are, in a sense, traditionally um, secret, if you will, <laughs> uh, how they're being researched, what the implications are. There's a lot of very, very groundbreaking material now showing what's happening, not just in terms of mapping in the brain, but what's happening in the neuroendocrine system with hormones for, and neurotransmitters, for example, uh, associated with, with practices related to tumor and how in an interdisciplinary sense, um, what's happening differently when breathing is done, you know, in the, you know when they have corollary practices, let's say, in the Shaiva tradition and the Taoist tradition. Um, so a little bit, my research now is sort of looking at that more interface between uh, a larger sense of scientific research and um, esoteric yogic practices uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but also including related practices from analogous traditions. So that's where my work is right now. Um, and um, I have a website that's kind of been <laughs> says under construction, but basically nothing's happened with it. Uh, and I will this summer uh, start to work with it actively. So that's at uh, www.ianbaker.com, and that actually does have a link to my to an email address, which is just ian at ianbaker.com. But people can also reach me at uh, ianbaker108 uh, at gmail.com. And um, yeah, very, very happy to, to respond to anybody who, who reaches out and uh, to, to talk more about ways in which this, um, this research can be furthered and looking at ways in which this can be, um, in a way, reach broader audiences through uh, targeted educational museum exhibitions, which become experiences rather than passive uh, uh, let's say, the way museum experiences would, would traditionally have been seen, uh, as well as, you know, further, further books that are planned for and intended, as well as retreats that in which some of this research can be actively 
engaged with, and that's research that uh, through retreats we're, we're planning among practitioners, traditional practitioners in Bhutan, for example, but also maybe you know once situations allow, to pra uh, in other contexts as well. So it's just looking about how really we're, I think, in an extraordinary period in history where so much of the, the great gift of the tantric Buddhist tradition has really kind of um, moved beyond some of the traditional restrictions, if you will, and is fully now in a transnational uh, intercultural context in which uh, we're able, I think, to explore some of what really lies at the heart of the tradition. And in doing so, the other aspect of my research right now is looking at some of these early Indian tantric Buddhist sources that were in existence before Buddhism even went to Tibet. And a lot of that is interestingly from female Mahasiddhas like Lakshmankara, uh, Sahaza Yogini, others whose voices are relatively unknown, even though they were obviously of extreme importance and who are really at the forefront of texts on Sahaja City, the attainment of the natural state or the realization of the natural state. So to prefigure uh, the more developed formulations, if you will, or elaborated formulations of Dzogchen in Tibet. So I'm really looking at what was the role of some of these female uh, realized masters in Udiana in particular uh, that... Uh, to which the Tibetan Buddhist tradition owes its being. Um, and um, so that, that's just sort of a range of some of the some of what I'm working on at the moment. Remarkable. Thank you for sharing that. We look forward to seeing the fruits of your efforts. And we really do have to bring you back on here. Um, Ian, there's so much more we want to explore <laughs> with you. But I know you're busy. I'm incredibly grateful for what you do for the time you spent with us um, today. And all I can say is big bow of gratitude and let's find another opportunity where we can um, reap the, the benefits of your extraordinary experience. So thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it on behalf of our community. Deep, deep bow of gratitude. Thank you very, very much. It was really, really a great gift to, to be able to, to, to enter into dialogue in this way. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a special thanks to Ian for taking time out of his schedule to share his amazing knowledge and experience with these places. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. Things are really cooking these days. But until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>